Hello, I'm Sam Skrubala, and welcome to episode 6 of Politics World with Sam Skrubala. The 2017 general election cycle has been one full of surprises. Gone are the polls that saw Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party trail the Conservatives by as many as 20 or even 25 points, and we now have a much tighter race on our hands. Yet the polls are not in agreement. ICM recently had the Conservatives with an 11-point lead, while Salvation had the Tory lead at just a single point. So what do we make of these increased Labour figures? And what is the future of the polling industry following the 2015 general election and Brexit when it came under tremendous scrutiny? I now have the pleasure of welcoming Kieran Pedley, Research Director at GFK and host of the Polling Matters podcast. Kieran Pedley, welcome to the show. Hi Sam, good to be with you. Now we've seen the figures for Labour improve dramatically over the past couple of weeks in what's sort of been called a Corbyn surge. Yet, as I noted at the top of the show, we see radical differences between polls in terms of how far Labour are behind the Conservatives. Why are we seeing such different numbers and what can we read into it? Well, the first thing to say is that the polls show a reasonably consistent um, you know, uh, picture in terms of what's happening in this election campaign. The Conservatives started a long way ahead and the Labour Party have significantly narrowed the gap. Where you rightly point out there is a difference is in terms of how much that gap has narrowed and what the gap now is. And you mentioned ICM, there's also Comres that have a gap of about 12 points. And Salvation, yes, are around one or two today. Um, but YouGov also around the four-point mark. And there's others in between as well. And really, the difference can be explained very simply by how pollsters treat turnout. So one of the findings in the 2015 um, polling inquiry, following the um, obviously the poll error at the 2015 general election, was that the sample that uh, pollsters were using was not necessarily representative of the, the, the population that votes. Now, that will partly be to do with who shows up at the polling station and partly to do with uh, and comparing that to um, who takes part in opinion polls. And the idea is that people that take part in opinion polls are a bit too engaged and that, that has, a ha- has a habit of skewing people a bit left. So, and therefore overstating Labour. So some pollsters are essentially modelling turnout based on to all intents and purposes, what happened last time or what has happened historically in the past. And that's what you're seeing companies like ICM and Comrades do. On the other hand, you've got pollsters that are trying to treat the uh, the problem, if, if you like, at the sampling stage and are, and are still treating um, turnout in, in a self-reported fashion, meaning that you know maybe you take people that say, I am 10 out of 10 certain to vote and you trust them at their word. Now, on the one hand, what the people that are doing that are doing is possibly the best long-term solution, which is to try and deal with the problem at the source and get a genuinely representative sample of voters taking part in polls. There is There are question marks as to whether they're fixing the issue in 2015. And we, we simply don't know the answer to that question at the moment. And I think it's important for your listeners to, uh, to appreciate that most of the pollsters get quite similar results in their voting intention polls at the moment before they apply uh, some sort of turnout. Uh, weighting or sort of turnout factoring into um, what they eventually produce. So this isn't necessarily a case of the pollsters getting different sort of ingredients into their poll at the moment. It just seems like they're treating uh, the results in a different way. And at the moment, as you say, there's a big disparity uh, between the different pollsters, and we're going to learn a lot from what happens uh, on polling day. 
Well, another sort of poll that we've seen going about is in terms of leadership ratings, which has, of course, been one of the focal points of this campaign. Has Jeremy Corbyn been a competent leader of the Labour Party? Of course, the Conservatives essentially just running on the fact that Theresa May was their leader to start off the campaign. How important are things such as leadership ratings as opposed to sort of these frontline polls that just uh, talk about voting intention? How much stock should we really be putting into these sort of polls? Um, lot, lots is probably the answer. I think, I, I think it's very important to look at not just the uh, horse race, as we sometimes call it in the industry, so what you referred to there, which is the, the state of the parties. Uh, it's also important to look at the, the fundamentals, some people call them the internals or whatever, but basically the, the supplementary questions that get asked. You've talked about leader ratings, but it's also worth looking at things like the issues, uh, what's on people's minds as they're going to the polling station. We know that Labour voters much more interested about the NHS, Conservative voters very motivated by Brexit, not least because a lot of Conservative voters are historically UKIP voters now as well. But to go back to, uh, or, or were UKIP voters, um, to go back to your point about leadership ratings, though, there is a very clear pattern that's been told from what they've said during the campaign, which is that Jerry Corbyn, as you rightly identified, started off not just not just with bad ratings, but with some of the worst leader ratings of any leader of the opposition in history. And he significantly narrowed the gap with Theresa May, and he's done that by um, essentially bringing Labour voters home and um, sort of convincing uh, small uh, people that normally vote for small parties or people that normally don't vote uh, to vote for him, or at least that's what the polls say, and we'll just have to see what happens on polling day. On the flip side, Theresa May has had a, a terrible campaign. I think that that's subjectively the case. It may yet not matter in terms of her uh, sort of victory or otherwise. But, you know, we all know about the campaign, you turning on the social care plan, not showing up to debates, having a very stilted um, sort of demeanour in, in, in media interviews. All of this has hurt the Conservatives because ultimately they based their whole campaign on her brand and on her being strong and stable, the phrase she uses, and the safe pair of hands and all the rest of it, and that seems to have been challenged. Now, what that's shown in the numbers, though, is that her rating has taken a bit of a tanking. Jeremy Corbyn's has improved, but she's still broadly ahead, or at the worst-case scenario, neck and neck. And that can be if you're asking people whether they're satisfied with each candidate, whether they think they're doing well or badly, um, whether they approve or disapprove, whatever measure you want to use, they're, they're either they're, the gap is narrowing. The issue for the Labour Party, though, is that when you make force people to make a choice and you say, which would you prefer in Downing Street, who would you prefer to be the Prime Minister, then Theresa May still wins, and she wins by anywhere between 10 and 15 points over Corbyn on that. Now, that points to a result not dissimilar to what we saw in 2015, because uh, the gap between David Cameron and Ed Miliband was about that gap as well. Um, now, the result itself, which we may come on to, is a whole, you know, there's all sorts of different things that go into that that may make it different from 2015, even with similar results. But, but to answer your question, yes, they're really important because you need to understand what people think of the people that they're potentially going to vote for. But also you need to understand what people are thinking of when they go to the ballot box. Now, there you mentioned uh, that Labour and Corbyn were bringing Labour voters home. And as we've seen sort of this Corbyn surge and Labour surge, how much of this do you feel is simply them bringing voters home? How much of this surge really isn't a surge in that they should have had these voters wrapped up at a much earlier stage of the campaign? Well, the irony is if, if they had done, maybe they wouldn't have been a campaign at all, because I suspect the polling gap was a lot of the reason why um, this election is, is even happening in the first place. Look, there's definitely something in the idea that Labour voters are being brought home. 
one of the quirks in the methodology of opinion polls that are produced in the UK is that for quite a lot of pollsters, if you say don't know uh, to the voting intention question, you're stripped out of the numbers. Now, that's not 100% the case. ICM have a have a policy where they kind of reallocate people back in if they say don't know based on how they voted last time and there's a complex way they do that which you can read about on their website um but the, the point is that there were quite a lot of labor voters in the past saying that they didn't know who they'd vote for in a hypothetical future election and they were being stripped out therefore of voting intention polls so it was quite I mean, they were a sort of low-hanging fruit in a way, or theoretically at least, um, for to bring back into the Labour fold people that probably were always going to vote Labour, but maybe were telling pollsters six months ago or even six weeks ago that they weren't sure how they were going to vote. But I think it's fair to say that the, the Corbyn surge, and again we should remember, insofar as there is one, I mean, if, if ICM or Comrades turn out to be right, then we're talking about a gap that was 20, that's now 12, and a 100-seat Conservative majority, but we'll wait and see whether they are right. Um, it, the, the Corbyn surge is driven by other things too, and, and I was looking at some numbers from a Salvation Poll today, which um, shows the gap at two points, and I don't really want to focus on the gap, but just the, where the Labour vote is coming from. And what you find if you look at the Labour vote now and how it would how it split out in 2015, you find that about one in five Labour voters now either didn't vote in 2015, maybe they were too young, or maybe they um, just were non-voters historically, or they voted for other parties, particularly the Greens. And I guess a real question is going to be, is that accurate? You know, Are one in five Labour voters going to the polls uh, on Thursday going to be people that didn't vote or voted Green last time? I'm... I'm bit skeptical about that but you never know i mean this would this would make sense i suppose that the, the, the people that support corbyn could be those types of people so you know the corbyn surge is a complex picture um we should though always 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 bear in mind that we're not quite sure to what effect that uh, that surge will have uh, on the result well you mentioned there that um if there is a corbyn surge some of it may be coming from green voters in this election, the Liberal Democrats and the Green Party certainly had Brexit at the centre of their campaign. They're sort of the two parties that were trying to represent the Remain vote, but neither have really been able to capture this. Are we seeing in terms of salience of issues that Brexit simply hasn't been that important an issue at this election? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I think I have been struck by how little uh, Brexit has been discussed at this election. And the best explanation I can give for that fact is that the two main parties that would form a government both accept the result. And I think that, to be fair, whether you supported Remain or Leave, I think you have to conclude that Jeremy Corbyn was right not to go into this election calling for a second referendum, because I think that would have caused a, a, a real problem for the Labour Party. Um, not least because public opinion right now seems basically to say, get on with it. I think that is the prevailing mood. And people talk about the the 48%, if you like, the, the Remain vote. But it's not a monolithic block of people. Around one in five, one in four, sorry, Remain voters kind of you know, want to get on with it. They accept the result. They don't want a second referendum. That's one of the things that we've been seeing on our podcast with a polling series that we're running with opinion. Now, that may change, and people can write, listening to this will rightly point out Brexit hasn't happened yet. So maybe six months from now, once the negotiations are in full force, if things aren't going very well, then the message that the Greens, or probably in reality more likely the Liberal Democrats, um, have pushed might resonate more. And you might start to see again um, some more success at the ballot box for the Lib Dems. As an aside, 
we don't quite know how bad it's going to go for them on Thursday. Maybe they'll do better than we expect. But um, nevertheless, you're right. There has been no Lib Dem surge. So I think really it's just a question of timing for those parties. Um, Theresa May's called this election just before Brexit actually happens. I think for now, the prevailing mood uh, in the public, as I've said, is to get on with the job. Whether that lasts, who knows? Now, obviously, uh, in the past few years at the 2015 general election at Brexit, uh, we've seen the polling industry come under quite a bit of scrutiny in public. We had Tom Brake on our last podcast, and he sort of was saying he doubts the polls nowadays. How has the polling industry sort of adapted over the last couple of years? How has polling changed to sort of fix the perceived issues that were there? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, even as a pollster, I, I sympathise with what Tom is saying. It's it's very difficult, and I mean, we, we have to remember that voting intention polling is a very unique thing. What you're trying to do is to extrapolate from a survey how people are going to behave in the future. And on this in this particular case, we're talking about an election, uh, and you know, surveys do that in other walks of life as well, such as trying to understand if people are going to buy a certain car or you know. Um, uh, how they're going to respond to a certain advert and that sort of thing. Um, so it is really difficult, and you've got to have an accurate reflection of who's going to show up on the day. And that's a, an ever-moving uh, target based on um, ever-divided you know, uh, loyalties. You know, people seem to be shopping around for the parties that um, best support their views, and which is ironic, really, when you consider that the two main parties look like they might get the joint highest vote, the, the vote share that they've ever got at this election, but we'll wait and see what happens. Um, how have pollsters changed the methodology? Well, in different ways. You won't be surprised uh, for me to say that. As I kind of alluded to at the beginning, um, what's going into the polls is quite similar in terms of the sample. If, if the pollsters didn't treat turnout differently, they'd all produce quite similar results. The biggest thing that they're doing is they're sort of trying to wait uh, for turnout either terms of what's happened in the past or let people um, self-report. Uh, which I won't go into all the detail of that again because I did that earlier. Another thing they're trying to do is to look at sampling and one of the things they're trying to do is to, is to take questions from the British Elections Survey study sorry, and other related surveys that are face-to-face, -face, that are random probability, that are, um, to use that phrase, gold standard, and they're trying to sort of extrapolate from what people say there um, and compare that to what's going on in online polls, and polls are usually online now, and try and match the sample up. So to put some numbers to that, normally in online surveys, you get a sample that is more interested in politics than face-to-face -face surveys tell you that the, the actual population is. So one of the things you can do is you can get your sample from the online survey, and you can weight the numbers to be more reflective uh, of the wider population, essentially downweighting people that are interested in politics, because we know that we have too many of them your online samples. So I mean, without repeating myself from earlier, it's a combination of sampling and uh, how you deal with turnout. And uh, we will see on Thursday who's got it right. Now, in the past couple of days, uh, just to finish off, we've seen uh, YouGov make a forecast for the election and we've been seeing them across the internet. Are you willing to make something of a prediction now of what you think the final result will be? <laughs> Famous last words. Um... <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very, very difficult question, um, not least because vote share and how that transitions into seats is very volatile. It's volatile, not least because UKIP are not standing in every seat. In fact, UKIP are actually standing in less seats than the Green Party. And we know there was an awful lot of UKIP votes last time that are now, uh, that are now kind of available. So, 
Um, in terms of a prediction, I would, if I had to, to, to put a gun to my head and look at the polls and say which ones I, I, I where, where I thought it was, I would say a vote share for the Conservatives of anywhere between seven to ten points ahead of Labour. Um, I think that in reality, the polls that show the race neck and neck give me a sort of implausible sense of how the Labour vote is constructed for reasons I mentioned earlier, young voters, green voters, non-voters, you know, we may have egg on our face and it may, and Salvation may be crowing and you go up to a lesser extent uh, at their success, but I just find it hard to believe that Labour could put together an electoral coalition of, you know, in the upper thirties on the basis of that. So, you know, I would be looking at the Tories in maybe mid to low forties and Labour in sort of the mid thirties, um, and then in terms of seats, very hard to say, but I guess it could be anywhere between uh, sort of 50 to 80, depending on where the vote, how the, how the vote falls. And uh, I, won't, I won't sort of uh, commit to a particular majority in the House of Commons. But if you look, if you look at the seats, um, there are an awful lot of Brexit-leaning seats in the north of England and in the Midlands that the Conservative Party don't need a swing of much more than a couple of percent to take from Labour. Uh, those are the ones that you know I'm looking at and thinking there, there are conservative gains to be had there. And you've got to have an awful lot of young people and an awful lot of greens in those sort of northern and midland seats that I'm not even sure exist um, to be able to counterbalance that. And that's before we even talk about Scotland and some of the, the interesting things that are going on there. So I expect Theresa May to increase her majority relatively solidly. Um, but at the same time, look, you know, we could be surprised. We didn't, you know, the conventional wisdom didn't expect a remain vote, didn't expect Hillary Clinton to lose. And, you know, we know there is a, we know there is a uh, feeling that people want to kick the establishment and uh, kick the system at the moment. Uh, and maybe electing Jeremy Corbyn would be a way, uh, or, or at least, you know, producing a result that's neck and neck and therefore a hung parliament would be a way of doing that. I'm just not convinced that when it comes to it, um, Labour has the votes. Karen Pedley, thank you for joining us on today's show. Good to be with you. This has been Politics World with Sam Skrubala. I'd like to again thank our guest, Karen Pedley, and thank you all for listening. Remember, you can download our podcast now on iTunes. Go to the iTunes store and type in Politics World with Sam Skrubala. Also remember, you can watch all of our content on our YouTube channel. I'm Sam Skrubala. Thanks again to Kieran Pedley, and thank you for listening.